You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the 31st Psalm. 31st Psalm. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Yahweh, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Yahweh, faithful God. I hate those who regard, pay regard to worthless idols. But I trust in Yahweh. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of my, all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. <clears throat> I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear whisp- the whispering of many. Terror is on every side. As they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Yahweh. I say, You are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face to shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Yahweh, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be Yahweh, for He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love Yahweh, all you His saints. Yahweh preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. And let your heart take courage, 
all you who wait for Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we will take your holy word, a passage such as this, and use it in an, with good instincts, but use it nonetheless in ungodly ways, unrighteous ways. Grant us grace to sing it better by first making it less about ourselves this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Some will argue that the 31st Psalm is a compilation of psalms. That's why you see this one instance of a prayer moving from a cry for deliverance to confidence, and then the, that happening again. I, that's pure speculation. I don't think you have psalms being compiled here into one. I think you have a, a cycle of prayers within the psalm itself. Imagine uh, you have this short version. Excuse me. First you have this short version in verses 1 through 8, and then an extended version in verses 9 through 22 of the same prayer happening in a, in a cycle. So imagine a hit song being performed live, and first they open with the short radio edit before going into the extended remix and then capping it all off with this choral crescendo at the end. Something like that is what's happening in this psalm. But then you realize the analogy falls short in this because this is not you being part of a crowd, being entertained. This is a political, religious address by the king to his people in song, calling for them to act. The subject matter concerns treason that goes all the way to the top and deliverance that comes all the way down. And this prepares you, I believe, for what is the most important thing in interpreting this psalm. It's the most important thing in interpreting most of the psalms, especially those psalms of David. For you to sing this song best, you have to sing it with the voice of another. So think of of the psalms, so many of them, like a folk song or an old western song that's telling a story and there are names, there are places, there are things that create distance between you and the song. You have to sing it with another's voice. There's a specificity to it. There's particular places. There's real relationships. There are tangible settings that create distance between you and the song. And so although there are times when you may identify with the singer, you realize there is not identity with the singer. There's distance between you. You need to hear your king singing this song. You need to picture the king singing this song and the people of God responding to his calls within this song. 
you need to distance yourself from the psalm a bit so that the full truth and thus power and impact of this song upon you hits you. If you get too close, you miss it. So, although I'm going to make some general connections as we go through the psalm, at the same time, I hope you see how those immediate connections to you will mean far less if that's all you grasp. If that's, if that's the only thing you get, rather than distancing yourself from the psalm and then coming back to those general connections. The opening imagery of the psalm in verses 1 through 4 of God as David's refuge is one that gets carried throughout the psalm, though it's emphasized especially in verses 1 through 4. Nowhere else as, as much as in these verses. But it sets the tone for everything. God is David's refuge, and before he prays, be a rock of refuge for me, verse 2, he declares... In you, O Yahweh, do I take refuge. The prayers of David, this prayer in particular, the prayers of the Bible altogether, really, are full of professions, confessions, declarations, and statements. And you see the same thing several times over here. If you want to go to another place where it will really stand out, Read John 17, the prayer of our Lord. Our Lord did this. This is something, excuse me, this is something we should be doing in prayer. Now these declarations verge on praise sometimes, and no doubt they're intended as praise. This one is. But on the face of it, they're just statements. In you, O Yahweh, do I take refuge. And these kind of confessions and professions and declarations are a way in prayer of thinking on God with God. Think on God with God. Meditate on Him. Pick up a piece of truth and declare it in your prayers. Profess it. Confess it. Say your prayers with confessions and say your confessions. What you believe, say your confessions. I'm talking about confessions of sin, say those as well. Say your confessions of truth prayerfully. Because we don't declare truth in our prayers, we pray, we petition lies in our prayers. If there would be more profession and confession of truth in our prayers, they would serve as guide rails. They would serve as as fuel. They would serve as propellant to send us in the right direction in our prayers. Because we don't declare truths, we pray lies. Whenever you fill your prayers with more confessions and professions and declarations of truth, you'll find yourself praying. If you, if you find your prayer life stunted, perhaps it's, it's just because you don't know the material to begin with. 
Begin by professing, confessing, and declaring God's truth. And it will guide your prayers. Having declared that God is his refuge, he then asks to never be put to shame. He has to be delivered in verse 1. And this is where we would want to immediately run in this psalm to ourselves. We don't want to be put to shame. There are times whenever we want to be delivered. So we seek refuge in God. And it's not that these impulses are wrong. They are very right. The problem is that all by themselves, this good impulse so easily goes sideways in an ungodly manner Because we lack the depth that's to be gleaned from the context. Having declared God to be his refuge, he seeks deliverance. And it isn't that we cannot do that. The nagging phrase here that unearths the ungodly manner in which we go about this is in your righteousness deliver me. In your righteousness. Whenever you pray, don't let me be put to shame. Deliver me. Is your concern, your comfort? Or is it righteousness? These requests are about God, God's King, God's kingdom, His righteousness. And we're too quick to make them about Our kingdom, over which we're king. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, Matthew 6, 33. And too often when we pray these very prayers that are biblical, we're seeking first these things. And our concern is not at all about His righteousness and His kingdom. Are we soldiers calling in air support for the good fight of the faith? Or are we calling down to the front desk, irritated because the air conditioning isn't working? How do your prayers for, don't let me be put to shame, deliver me, function? What David has declared, he pleads, and then as grounds for why he's pleading that, the righteousness of it, the basis of, uh, upon which he comes to God with that particular plea, is what he's declared. David makes the declaration, then he pleads that declaration, and the grounds upon which he says he brings that plea to God is the declaration that he's made. In you, O Yahweh, do I take refuge. He declares that. And then he pleads, be a rock of refuge For me, verse 2. Then verse 3. Because for you are my rock and my salvation. Do you see how the declaration 
forms the plea, and it's the grounds for the plea. In your prayers, argue God to God. Make the basis of your coming to God, God. You want to arrive at the confidence that you see David arrive at in this psalm? Argue God to God. Not yourself, not your kingdom, not your righteousness, but simply righteousness. God, His King and His kingdom. Prayer is asking God to be for us what He has declared He will be for us on the basis that He declared He will be that for us. Argue God to God. I believe it was a Puritan author who said, God is fond of His own handwriting. Show it to Him. Bring it before Him. And with David's plea that God act as this strong fortress to save him, parallel to that is, do this, lead me and guide me, which is is parallel with be my refuge, lead me and guide me for your name's sake. And for your name's sake, unpack something of what it means in righteousness, deliver me. For your name's sake. God has given the covenant people of Israel His name, Yahweh. They bear it as a wife bears her husband's name. They are His. They call out to Him, Yahweh. But David is speaking here not simply as, I'm part of your people who bear your name. And so for your name's sake, lead and guide me, deliver me. David has covenantal relation with God, not simply as being part of the people of God, but directly as being God's king over God's people. For your name's sake. Lead and guide me involves David particularly, not just as an Israelite, but as king over God's people, Israel. And so is it true that God will lead and guide you for His namesake? Can you pray that? Absolutely, you should pray that. But first, ponder and consider that your king, Jesus was led and guided by the Father for the sake of the Father's name. Consider Jesus praying in John 17, I've manifested your name. Christ doing everything that He did, led and guided by the Spirit that was sent by the Father for the sake of His Father's name. Keep striving to hear this prayer in that context, and you'll see where it lands. David then recalls past deliverance, which explains why this kind of leading and guiding are necessary. You take me out of the net. This is that leading and guiding. You take me out of the net. They have hidden for me. There was a trap laid for David. He needs God's guidance. Now, who are they they are those who regard, pay regard to worthless idols, verse 6. They are his adversaries, verse 11. They are enemies, 
and persecutors, verse 15. They are schemers and plotters, verse 13. Who are they? The first two Psalms of the Psalter tell you who they are. They are Psalm 1, the wicked. They are, Psalm 2, those who scheme and plot against God's King, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords for us. And this helps you understand why David can just as easily plead, or pray, excuse me, he can just as easily pray, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, as he can say, but I trust in Yahweh. He can just as easily express Hatred for idolaters as he does trust and confidence in Yahweh. Sometimes it's said God hates sin but loves the sinner. That's only not true of God. It's not true even of David. Yes, but are we not to love our enemies as Jesus our King commanded in the Sermon on the Mount? Absolutely. But if you think that one portion of Scripture undoes another portion, you've not simply pitted Scripture against Scripture, you've pitted God against God. What are we to make of this? Well, both are true. There's a sense in which God loves sinners. And there's a sense in which God hates sinners. And as for the hatred, which is our focus here, it's this simple. If you love God, there is a very real sense in which you cannot love this world. To be friends of this world would be to hate your God. This world hates God. It's in rebellion against Him and we fully own That we were once children of wrath wrath, like the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's where we were. We found grace and mercy and we were rescued. And though all of that's true of us, we confess that our God was righteous and just to hate us. And for His wrath to abide over us when we were in such a state. And we declare it still whenever we're delivered. We praise Him for His mercy and grace. But it's nonetheless true that that is righteous and good and fitting for His wrath to fall upon sinners. Perhaps it's because we don't declare it often enough of ourselves that we don't declare it at all, ever concerning this world, unless still that it ever forms any part of our prayers. And note what's joined together as as a contrasting side of the same coin, complementary but contrasting. They pay regard to worthless idols. I trust in Yahweh. These are, these are two sides of the same coin, but the contrast isn't simply between they pay regard to idols, I trust in Yahweh, but it's David's hating those who trust, pay regard to idols, and David's trusting Yahweh. Those are two complementary sides of the same same stance and posture in David. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He does not love them. There is a kind of hate that he has towards the wicked. 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, let me make one brief attempt. If you're having problems swallowing this, let me make one brief attempt to try to uh, help you out. It's because we fail to righteously hate as we're We should, as the Bible instructs us to. It's because we fail to righteously hate that I believe we're crippled in our ability to profoundly, remarkably, unexplainably be merciful and forgiving and to forbear and to show grace. How is this so? Well, consider David. We see these kind of prayers again and again. And then you look at David's Life, and you begin to examine it. And again and again, you see surprising instances of long-suffering and forbearance and willingness to forgive and be merciful and to extend grace. How is that so? Because he knows that vengeance is the Lord's. He doesn't need to exact it himself. He can trust his God. And he can trust his God to deal with that sin either by saving, redeeming the, the sinner or judging the sinner The sinner's sins will be judged. They will be dealt with, either in Christ or on themselves. If you're thinking about taking uh, taking the imprecatory Psalms uh, uh, personally (laughs) to deal with your enemies, well then, yes, you've got problems. They shouldn't be appropriated in such a way. This is the kind of distance that I'm calling for between you and the singer of the Psalms in these instances. But when you pray, come, Lord Jesus, in the presence of evil, you are praying for nothing less than for Jesus Christ to return in glory and judgment and cleanse His earth from every vile sinner and wicked rebel. The reality is that we're far too at home and comfortable with this world. We're asking God to fix the air conditioning instead of redeem and judge. We don't see the lines drawn as Psalms 1 and 2, as all the Psalms draw them. Spurgeon wrote, The good man has his enemies. He would not be like his Lord if he had not. If he were without enemies, we might fear, if we were without enemies, we might fear that we were not friends of God. If you can't grasp the nature of this psalm at all, this passage, this kind of language, if you can't grasp it at all, you may genuinely be of the people of God. But I think the reality is you're you're comfortable in Jerusalem. And you're not one of the king's men, his mighty men, standing beside him in the very fight that affords you your peace. If you doubt the validity of this statement of hate, as we have it here, you have to doubt the validity of the statement of trust. That's the flip side of it. I trust in Yahweh. Well, just before that, he he expressed this trust in this way in verse 5. Into your hand... I commit my spirit. And the problem with doubting doubting the validity of this trust is that those are the very words that our Lord, He took back. 
He gave them to David and he took them back and said, those are my lyrics. As he was dying on the cross, as he was dying for his enemies, bearing the wrath of his father for sins. Can both these things be true? God loves the sinner and hates the sinner. Look to the cross. Out of the depth of that darkness, our Lord cried out with this statement of confidence and trust. Luke 22, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He's already said it is finished. Picture the confidence of our Christ having borne the Father's wrath. And on the other side of bearing the Father's wrath, He says, Father, I trust You. And to Your hands I commit my spirit. You feel your distance from these words now? Can you pray this? Can you pray into Your hands I commit my, I commit my spirit? You, you absolutely can pray that. But having heard our Lord cried it out from the cross, do you sense that I've never really prayed that prayer? Not with such truth and fullness and honesty and sincerity. There's always doubt mixed with my expressions of trust and confidence. And I've never cried out such a prayer in the face of such despair. In darkness. And yet, it's precisely because our Lord prayed this prayer, entrusting his soul to the Father, that we can pray it, entrusting our souls to our Lord. Because he's committed his spirit. To His Father, we can commit our spirit to Him as our Lord. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is without doubt the most well-known statement of the Reformed Confessions, and there are a great number of them. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Not without reason is it the most well-known, but the most comforting has to be the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Into your hands I commit my spirit. The catechism goes on. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, and He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me 
of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Having heard my Lord, having distanced myself from from this singer and hearing my King cry out into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. I can now take up those words and sing them more meaningfully. My hope is not that I can trust my God as the king does here. My hope is that I can entrust myself to this king who lived as I should have lived. And having come to this place of resolved trust, the king then rejoices. He rejoices in God's deliverance, past deliverance. And while we may be tempted to say in the light of this current trial, he's recalling past deliverance and rejoicing in that, anticipating future deliverance, believe that's so, but I think he's speaking of that future deliverance as well as though it were part of the past. So confident is he of God's deliverance. Verse 7 and 8, I will rejoice and be glad. I will Rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. You have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Spurgeon writes, For mercy past he is grateful, and for mercy future which he believingly anticipates he is joyful. In our most importunate intercessions, we must find breathing time to bless the Lord. Praise is never a hindrance to prayer, think petition, but rather a lively refreshment therein. If you find in your petitions there's all despair and it doesn't give birth to this kind of confidence, rewind to the beginning of this prayer. How do you get there? It began with these declarations and professions and confessions of God's truth. You are my refuge. And it's as though arriving at that place of confidence liberates and frees David to enter more fully into the woes of his soul. As we come to the second stanza in verses 9-22, through 22, the extended remix of this prayer, it doesn't simply draw out what we've seen in the first part, it lifts it up higher. The first thing that you know, notice about this extended edit, is just how extended it is. It's as though prayer pumped, uh, primed the pump of prayer. Prayer helps you pray. If you struggle in prayer, pray, pray, drawing from the Word. Confess, declare. And then what you've confessed and declare, plead. And then plead that upon the basis of what you've declared. David having done that, come to this place of confidence already. You see how it, he's, he's bringing the same cry before God in this next section, 9-22. through 22. But we move from simply petition for deliverance to lament for deliverance. 
You see how coming to this place of confidence liberates David to speak from the depths of his soul more openly, as it were. Verse 9, Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am in stress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also, my life is spent with sorrow. David has been here often. My life is spent with sorrow. My years with sighing. David's in deep sorrow and agony. The reason is because he has become. He has become a reproach. He has become an object of dread. Verse 11. He's become one who has been forgotten, one who is dead. He's become like a broken vessel, verse 12. And he's become these things because, verse 11, of all his adversaries. Again, I think the best thing for you to to do in appropriating this psalm as your own is to first hear another singing this. Life is not all about you. With a battle of others against you. Trying to keep you from recognizing all the units that you should be. And God coming alongside of you. To encourage you and cheer you along. That you can be all you can be. No. Throughout history, God's king has been opposed. Hated. There have been many shadows of this king, David chief among them. God's king, well, the rulers of this world took counsel against him. They plotted, they schemed, but our God laughed and the sun rose. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because right now the king is in the depths of woe and agony. And it seems as if all their plots, all their schemes, all their whispers, it seems as though that they are going to succeed in them. So that, verse 13, there's terror on every side. They scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. And yet, out of the depth of that lament, David says, but I trust in you. I say, you are my God. And over the very situation that's caused him such distress, he says, my times are in your hand. Your Lord. Spurgeon comments, Providence, that's God's arranging of affairs. Providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads. A grave for despair. The truth of God's providence is a grave for you to bury despair in. And then a set of petitions follow in verses 15 through 17. Rescue me. Make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me. Let me not be put to shame. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let the lying lips be mute. David is essentially praying this. Do you see it? Deliver me and damn the wicked. This is how God's deliverance always comes. God delivered Noah through judgment. God delivered His people out of Egypt through judgment. The book of Judges 
is full of episode after episode of God's people being delivered from God's enemies by judgment. The kings, how do they deliver God's people? By judgment. And the king, whenever he comes, he first delivers us from our sins. How? By bearing judgment. And when he comes again to deliver us fully, it will be by bringing judgment. Salvation comes through judgment. The incredible wisdom and glory of God is that he does not compromise his glory and righteousness in any way, but he he is worked in such a way to deliver us by judgment so that his glory is upheld doubly so in our salvation. The glory of his grace and the glory of his justice. Saints, the king has prayed this prayer. It will be answered. It has been answered. He sits at the right hand of the Father with all enemies being placed under his feet. And so once again, the king turns to uh, praise. But this time in verses 19 through 20, he does so in general terms that bring the people of God in. How abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of man, in your In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Consider this, though, as you're reading this psalm. The people of God find refuge in God from the enemies of God. Where do they find that refuge? They find it in the king that he gave them. The very refuge that the saints are to rejoice in in verses 19 through 20 comes in God hearing the prayer of their king in verses 1 through 18. And because he's heard the prayer of their king so that he delivers the king by defeating those enemies, they have found refuge and deliverance in God, in God's king. This is the only place where you can find deliverance and refuge sinners. Nowhere else. Do not go directly to God. Don't directly approach God. Sing the song through the mediator. Hear it in His voice first. And then come to God with this petition on your lips. Pleading the King and His deliverance as your own deliverance. When He died, I died. When He rose, I rose. I was once part of those foes upon whom nothing but wrath was to be shown, but in mercy he's delivered me. The king then returns to praising God for his personal deliverance in verses 21 and 22. Blessed be Yahweh, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Even though David thought he was cut off, God heard his pleas and his covenant faithfulness remained steadfast without fail. And then we come to this choral crescendo. And you notice what happens? The king turns his attention from petition and praise and imprecation and declaration and confession all directed towards God to commands For the people of God, His subjects. Verse 23 and 24. Love Yahweh, all you His saints. First command. Second command. Be strong 
And let your heart take courage, all you who wait for Yahweh. And he fuels obedience to these commands with a declaration. In the same way that David's prayer and confidence and faith was fueled by the declaration and confession he made, now he does so for the people of God. Yahweh preserves the faithful but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And evidence that that is so is the king's song of deliverance, which is meant to bolster their confidence in those very truths. Saints, right now, we wait on our Lord Jesus Christ to return and bring deliverance. And we may do so in confidence and in faith as we take up the song of our King. The song of the King's deliverance. Because Christ so trusted the Father in our stead, we can trust Christ. We can be strong. Let your heart take courage. Love Yahweh. The Father has heard the cries of your King, His Son. On the eve of His crucifixion, read John 17, He prayed for us. He prayed concerning us. And He sits at the right hand of the Father, praying still, interceding for us. And what He pleads is simply Himself. His deliverance, our deliverance. The Father has heard the cries of your King. His deliverance is ours. His exaltation is ours. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait on the Lord. Hear your King. You've heard of His deliverance. And hear your King turning from praise and confidence in His Father then to address you saying, Love Yahweh. All you His saints, Yahweh preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. All you who wait for Yahweh, who wait for me. And we say, entrusting our souls to Him, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, bring us to confidence as we come before you pleading Christ's name. He is our confession. He's our declaration. We come to you in Jesus' name. And for the sake of Jesus' name, we ask you that you would lead us and guide us, that we would not be put to shame, that we would be delivered, not from personal irritations, but that we would find refuge in you, both from the battle that we fight within against our sins and the battle that we fight without against all those forces opposed to your truth and your glory and your gospel. 
So move us towards confidence. Father, grant us courage and strength to be strong. And in light of your gospel goodness to us in Christ, fill our hearts with love. For your namesake, you are worthy. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.